What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Dream Chasing 101 podcast. Today, we have a special guest all the way from Kenya. Um, and I'll leave it up to Nava just to give a bit of context to who she is and, wh- and what she does. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Nava. I am from Kenya. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Enda. Um, Enda is a company. Uh, okay, first of all, Enda means go in Swahili. And we are a company that are working with Kenyan athletes to create running shoes for runners around the world. The idea being that um, Kenya really has a great reputation in running for so many years, but we haven't really engaged in uh, productive manufacturing. And so the idea behind Enda is to take a piece of that uh, global action, if I would call it, and bring it home uh, to create more social impact. And, you know, this this is a question we always ask on the podcast is when you were you know, growing up and you were young, did this ever come, you know, what was your idea of what you'd be doing in the future? Uh, I, I have to say that I, I've never, my, my path has never been clear. Like when I was younger, I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, which surprisingly, I am a lawyer technically, but I don't practice. Like <laughs> I I really, really wanted to be a lawyer. And then I got there and I'm like, um, okay, you know, maybe I could try out something else. But um When I was growing up, it was clear I wanted to be a lawyer. And then at some point, I think um, I was always interested in different things. And so my career has always been about pursuing things that I'm interested in. And so uh, the first job I did was uh, basically risk analysis. It had nothing to do with law, but um, I was given an opportunity to be an intern um, somewhere because I'd done my accounting. And so they thought, okay, you could kind of help us with something. And that pretty much set me off on a different career path. And at some point I decided, uh, as I said, I did accounting uh, because my brother thought it would be an interesting skill to have. And I was like, just just go and study it. It doesn't hurt. You'll always need it. And then after that, I studied international development uh, because uh, I was interested in it, uh, kind of just trying to understand uh, development. And then basically, okay, in short, because I'm rambling in short. No, no, go for it. hasn't been... Yeah, my path hasn't been uh, linear. It's kind of been taken me to many places around the world. Um, many, uh, like, um, I'd say formal and unorthodox employers. Like, I've just kind of been everywhere. And I think uh, Enda is part of that journey where the question wasn't really, am I qualified to do this? The question was, why hasn't this been done? And then I was like, okay, let's do this. And that's how I ended up there. And I was just about to bring that up. How does a lawyer slash accountant end up you know creating a, a a running shoe how did that come about and if you can give us a bit of context to uh your co-founder weldon and how you guys kind of met and how this came about yeah so as i've mentioned before uh, my path has always been about asking questions and uh, one of the questions that came um when i was studying um i was doing my master's in london and at that particular point there was uh, the wimbledon uh, competitions for tennis and at that particular point, I remember watching it. Of course, I was rooting for the Williams sisters. And I was like, why is there no African? You know, like we, we don't get to the to the to the major courts. Maybe we'll kind of get uh, like young and upcoming, but we, we are not really featured in like the top uh, ATP 100. And so that sets me on a path of what if we create a tennis academy that can actually like is looking at five, ten years down the line, because tennis is not something you just wake up and do. Like most of the pros started it when they were younger. So what if we brought that to Africa? Long story short, I tried that idea. It didn't work out. But from those failures, I was asking myself, okay, I still know sports is a big thing. 
I still know there's opportunity to create a social impact in Kenya through sports. So what can I do with it? And these were the questions fundamentally I was asking in, uh, it was a pitch of sorts. It was an accelerator that I'd gone through to kind of like refine my thoughts of the tennis school. And it so happened that my co-founder, Weldon Kennedy was in the, was in the crowd when I was talking about this and just saying like, you know, there's just still so much untapped potential in sports and Afterwards, he was like, you know, I really liked what you're talking about. Like he empathized, he's a runner and he's also from a background of social change. And he was like, those questions are questions that need answers. And that discussion led to the fact um, we were basically saying, okay, what would be that industry that makes sense from a Kenyan perspective? And the answer was uh, running, of course. And then what would be the one um, factor that would make such an impact in the running space, not just monetary, but also from an impact perspective? And the answer was running shoes. And then the question was, why don't we make running shoes? You know, and there's like, that's an interesting question. The idea of Kenyan men running shoes would, it's so obvious that, you know, why, why hasn't it been done before? And that's when we had that aha moment and we were like, let's do this, you know, and um, yeah, many years later, we're still doing it. And I mean, this is a is a tedious process, you know, to break into this kind of market is very tough. How was the, mm-hmm. the you know, the process of going through a crowdfunding process and, and how did that all come about? Um, yeah, crowdfunding humbles you, let me just say, because you kind of have to ask favors that involve money and those are not usually easy questions to have. But we ended up at crowdfunding because we couldn't find money. Like uh, if you go to traditional financial institutions, they ask for security. I'm like, well, if you look at Africa's age group, we're not rich and we are young. So you're kind of asking me to do something that is basically telling me, yeah, that dream of yours is nice, but it's not going to happen because you never have the money. And so um, it was more strategy uh, and also uh, opportunity in the sense of we basically, I think if we had money, we wouldn't have done crowdfunding. And so not having that money basically made us think, uh, okay, what do we need to do in order to get this money? And that led us to, after trying different options, we were like, you know what, let's do so, um, like online crowdfunding. And that actually happened to be the best thing we did uh, because it's not only allowed us to tap to international markets right from the start. Usually people start local, then they could go global. We were able to do the other way around. So that was an advantage. Secondly, it was money without strings, like there was no interest. It was a patient uh, kind of customer and it allowed us to make mistakes without really falling flat on our face with regard to having to do payments. So I would highly advocate crowdfunding for those people who can. But that said, it's not an easy process, but I think that's generally business because you have to be able to ask people for feedback, ask them for money sometimes. Like you have to talk to people, which is hard, especially if you're an introvert. But I've learned that um, sometimes the solution to your problem is just one conversation away. You just need to talk to someone, even though you don't like it. But people have solutions. You just have to reach out to them. And the way I actually found out about you guys was watching um, sneaker shopping. Uh, and, ah, and Lupita kind of oh. gave you guys a shout out. So that was how I kind of got introduced to the brand. And I think it's, it's been over a year now that I've awesome. been following you guys. Did you see awesome. an uptake in the brand once she kind of mentioned you guys on there? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not only was there an uptake in the brand, but there's also an uptake in media opportunities, people wanting to collaborate and stuff like that. So she definitely opened doors in a way that we didn't expect and in a way that I don't, maybe she knows she has that power. I don't know, but it, it, it was like a huge, uh, opening for us. And coincidentally, it came, uh, this was during our second crowdfunding and we weren't doing as well as we had expected. And we didn't ask her about it. We didn't know she was going to be on the show. We didn't know um, Joe Lapuma was going to ask her that question. But it was so coincidental that it happened when we were like, okay, this crowdfunding campaign isn't working out. We need to figure out something to give it a push. And then we wake up and Lupita is talking about our product just so we have an online campaign. And that, that worked its magic. Like it was um, it was amazing. And do you think, you know, that... Well, she wasn't obligated to kind of give you guys a shout out in any way. So how was that for you? Firstly, you know, just per on a personal level that someone of her stature, I mean, she obviously has made massive strides in Hollywood. How has that relationship been? And do you guys still kind of keep in touch and does she give feedback on, on the product? Um, not really. Like we haven't, I personally haven't been in touch with her personally, but I have uh, kind of written her a thank you note uh, to kind of just say, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, but, um, I would say like it, she didn't have to do it, you know? And I think for me, I took it as a personal lesson in the sense of looking at myself and saying, is there someone who in my position I can help in that particular way? Like, uh, maybe it's a small business or someone looking for mentorship or something like that. I mean, I can't help everyone, but I can definitely help someone to figure out um, a way to amplify their business or to amplify their voice. So I think from a personal perspective, it gave me that reflection of she did that. She didn't have to. So how can I pass on that to somebody else? And at the same time, um, I think just the human spirit of, um, um, I think sometimes you kind of grow up in a situation where people always ask for something back. And I think for her, it was a good uh, gesture, not just for her, but also I think for me when I reflect about it, that it was someone who, um, I mean, there are people who approached us asking us for tons of money that we don't have saying, yeah, I could do this for you and I could do this for her. And she she didn't charge us, you know, she didn't, like she had nothing to benefit. She'd have just been like, oh, I, I don't know those guys. What, who are you talking about? <laughs> but she gave us that. And so... I think for me, it's um, just a uh, reaffirmation of the human spirit that sometimes you can actually get help from people without having to have anything to offer. And that that's how we should be as humans, essentially, because it makes a huge difference to someone else. And that difference doesn't necessarily have to be monetary all the time. Yeah, I think it was really awesome that she, she gave you guys that shout out. And that's how I got, and I'm, I suppose a lot of people got familiar with the brand and hopefully they ended up buying shoes. What was some of the, the massive challenges with crowdfunding? Did you guys have any specific, you know, challenges that you guys came across that you can maybe uh, give some advice to people who are currently, you know, looking at that as a possible option? And um, yeah, just your, yeah, your thoughts uh -huh. on that. Um, I'd say crowdfunding needs lots of planning. I think for some people, you just be like, oh, I'm just going to set up a campaign and it will work. Nah, I think you need to give yourself like six, four to six months in advance before you start the campaign. And then you have to make a list. Um, I, like I would say for we, my personal lesson from experience from that is um, if you have like 100 people, 
maybe 10 will give you the money. So don't just look at this like, oh my God, I'm going to get all this money from these people. Like people have other stuff to do. They have other problems. <laughs> you are not necessarily the center of the universe. And so it's important to start planning in advance because of all the people that you need to contact, um, just a small percentage is going to get back and a smaller percentage is going to commit to actually give you the, the funds. And so I'd say first thing is you have to plan, plan, plan and get um, as much help from your friends as possible. I mean, I have an address book for my email, but it's only mine. But if we had 10 people with their 10 address books, it's much more easier. And if um, I get an email from someone I don't know, uh, it's much more difficult than if someone says, hey, my friend Shani is running this campaign. Would you want to help them? And so you need people essentially to reach out directly to their networks to sign up to help you. And so your friends really have to come through. <laughs> they really have to come through. And um, I, I'd say kind of go into it knowing that people have other stuff to do. They may say, no, it's not personal. Uh, don't take it personally because... Um, people are going through different things. Some of it you don't, you know, some of it you don't know, but it's okay. Like, I know it's okay. It's not a no forever and to be like, oh my God, I've never talked to this person, but kind of just take it in stride. And then um, kind of figure out the communication plan. And so, yes, people are on your mailing list. What are you, so are they just going to sit idle or you need to give them like updates and those updates need to be well thought about. And that's why I said like four to six months, because you need to have all those done so that you're not scrambling during the campaign to type emails, to keep people updated. It's just um, copy paste go or like uh, scheduling it. And then um, what else? Uh, well, media was hard for us, to be honest. We tried um, getting media attention, like writing press releases and stuff like that. It didn't work initially. However, when we, our first crowdfunding campaign we've done to the first one we did got so much traction. I think we raised the money in three days, which was like amazing. And so that basically got us a lot of media attention, even from the media people who are basically saying, ah, it looks interesting, but no. And so uh, the, the key thing really is that rejection is part of the process and it's okay. It's never personal. You just know that they're probably chasing for another better story. And when you become that story, it will be much easier for them to do that. But you have to maintain those relationships because those ones are the relationships that will help you uh, even as your as your business grows. And um, what else can I say? I'd say it's planning. The crowdfunding is 90% planning, 10% execution. And when you're actually doing the campaign, you have to... You don't just say, okay, now I've planned and sit back and relax. Like, um, you have to keep watching the campaign. So our second campaign was much slower than our first campaign. The first campaign we did, we raised the money, like in a week we were done. The second campaign, it was like five days to, and we were still like at 60% um, funded. And it was all or nothing because Kickstarter is like, yeah, you either raise it all or you, yeah, and the money goes back to the people. And so each campaign is very unique. The mistake we made is we assumed that the first campaign would have the same characteristics as the second campaign. Um, that was a big mistake on our part. Another mistake we did is we paid for, we paid for online ads for the second campaign, which I think gave us a massive email list of which there were people who didn't know us. And we focused on that massive email list as opposed to the first time where we only focused on people we knew and their contacts and their contacts. So we had a stronger commitment. And then when we went to the second round, we thought, why not just ask everybody to come to the party? So everybody said they're coming to the party, but we didn't know who everybody was. 
and they didn't have any attachment to us. So when the party happened, like maybe a few of them showed up and that's when we were like, oh my goodness, we need to do something. And so we had to really amp up our Facebook, Instagram live. Like we did every, I remember people just sitting in the room, like shocked, dazed. <laughs> we did everything we could. And um, luck happened. But Peter happened to be on the complex sneaker show and that really like five days to it just changed everything, you know? And so there is also an, an element of luck, but um, luck, I think, uh, favors you if you're prepared. And I think, um, yeah, it's luck, but it's also, you know, just a testament, like you said, of, you know, the, the idea that you guys had was to, you know, give back to Kenya in the most Kenyan way possible, which is through running. And I think people really um, related to that, you know, everyone tries to support homegrown, um, brands so I think that was kind of the the main idea and, and I think people really you know took to that what can you with regards to the actual process of designing a running shoe what can you tell the people you know that what goes on behind the scenes what elements you know are you know just to give a bit of behind the scenes um, knowledge <laughs> Uh, designing actually takes a long time. Like for now, we have just finalized designs for 2021. Like it's, uh, you always have to be like nine to 18 months uh, ahead of the game because there's so many people involved in the supply chain and, um, so many costs to be incurred. So you always have to be planning ahead. But I think, um, it, I feel like design has to be intentional, at least for us, for our brand, we've kind of gone to an intentional brand. Because we didn't want design to just be a shoe. We wanted the shoe to have so much meaning when someone holds it. It's not just, hey, look at my enders. It's like, do you like, do they know the story? And I think, um, kind of cop uh, copying how African traditional history was kind of like, it wasn't written in books, right? Sometimes I wish it was, but it wasn't. It was through storytelling. And I feel like uh, that's basically is what we have adopted as a brand where we're like, okay, what elements of design can we use to tell a story so that when someone buys this product, A, they learn something new uh, about another culture, B, they feel the pride of what went into the product so that you, you kind of just know it wasn't just like, here's something and it's a blob and take it. It was like intentionally designed for someone to enjoy it, for someone to use it, for someone to converse to someone else about it. It's like, do you know what this means or what that means? And so the design process takes a long time. Uh, we try to be intentional about it. We try to tell stories through them and we try as much as possible to figure out which parts can be sourced locally and which ones are not able to be sourced locally. So it really is a long process and currently involves a, a team in China, a team in the US, a team in Kenya. It's very global. Uh, by the time you have that product, um, there's basically been a lot of people who've gone through that design to be able to tell the story through the product. And I think, uh, you know, going through your website and obviously through your social media, being a Kenyan-led business is like the main concept of this. This is what makes it work. Uh, can you talk mm -hmm. about, you know, the term Harambe, you know, the Harambe spirit? and how that ties into the brand. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's actually the core of the brand. Um, so Harambe basically means we all pull together. It's usually a call. Uh, it was most popular during the tenure of our second president, but the, the philosophy still remains. The, the, the idea is that if you're not able to do something, if you call more people, you're able to do it. So in traditional African society, for example, if you're touching a roof for the house, 
And you don't, I mean, it's nothing someone can achieve by themselves. You need someone to be able to hand you the grass, to tie the poles and do everything. And so that's the spirit of Harambe, that it's not about you, it's about us. When one of us is in trouble, all of us come to help. And if you think about how our brand has always been, like, we exist because people came to chip in. Some gave in $10, some 100 some, but it was a community effort. And that community effort, um, it was over a thousand people gave and through that process of giving and buying our products, even before they had, like, we just had like one prototype. <laughs> and that process is basically what made us happen. So it was literally a Harambe process where we were like, okay, we cannot do this alone, but what if we gave this to the world? And the world said, you, you deserve to exist. And so that's part of it. And then it's also the philosophy we are trying to emulate with our athletes, where, um, again, that, that one we also learn from the athletes themselves. If you see how the Kenyan athletes run, it's always a pack, and they always try to, you know, like keep, keep each other together. They will break off at some point, but they always try to stay together because sometimes it's like, I may not be first, but my countryman is going to be first. And it's how they work. They live together. They train together. They clean and do manual chores together. And it's all about that camaraderie that comes in. And so when you see the final product of a Kenyan athlete winning, it's not just that one athlete. There were coaches, there were teammates. There was like, there was so much community involved in building that person. And so when we thought about Harambe, it was like, we wouldn't exist without people, you know, literally. And so that's one of the things we put on all our shoes, the word Harambe. Uh, to be a reminder. So someone can ask, what does this mean? And they are able to learn why Harambe is important to us as the brand. And uh, basically to go for that spirit to move to whoever wears our shoes that they understand they're part of this community um, of people who make things happen. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really important kind of aspect, especially because, like you said, you guys were crowdfunded. So it literally ties in so nicely. It's a good story. But I think you guys also focus a lot on, you know, like being, like I said, being Kenyan led, you know, can you talk about the economic development that you guys are, you know, contributing to the Kenyan um, uh, economy and what you guys are doing and how much, you know, this has taken off and, and is a part of your business? Yeah, so it's it's actually the the reason for existence, if I would say that, because when we met, when we started this company, the one thing that we were very clear on is to bring the benefits of running back to Kenya, because running is a huge, multi-billion industry, but Kenya is a poor country. The Kenyan athletes are always winning, but that doesn't really translate into much other than individual um, people. And so that was one of the things that we said, okay, this company is going to be committed to people from the beginning. And one of the commitments we made is to uh, keep 2% of our revenues to basically go into community projects. And we that was a commitment because I remember, I mean, I've done a lot of work in consulting and CSR and stuff like that. And I always felt as though CSR is an afterthought. Where we're like, oh my gosh, we've made so much money. What can we do to help the community? You know, As opposed to how can we grow with this community? How, how do we make uh, people feel like they're part of this growth? You know, And so that commitment was to basically tie the company uh, for the current and for the future, however it grows, to say that, we recognize that the system has always been that of extraction from the communities, you know? And so as a company, we want to try to do something different. Instead of extracting 
why don't we grow together? That way, if I fail, we fail. If I grow, we grow. The spirit of Harambe again. But I feel like I'd rather take my bet on people than money anytime because people will always uh, bail you out. And so the, the, the whole reason of creating impact is just based on that fact that there's this huge industry is making so much money. We are involved as a tiny fraction only in marketing. What if we actually got into production? And hence, one of the things we want to do is create jobs. Um, and job creation isn't just for people who work within Enda, who work in the factory. It's also the, the little supply chains that are popping up because we exist. So someone, for instance, would be like, oh, um, I can make shoelaces, you know, and I'm like, great, give us samples, you know. Somebody else is like, I can make uppers, I can do canvas, I can do all these things. And what we found out is that people aren't lazy, you know, in a sense, sometimes people portray the poor as lazy. They're like, oh, yeah, you're, lazy, you're poor because you're lazy. No, opportunities is what makes the difference. And so if you present people with an opportunity, so we exist now and you're like, all of a sudden we have this demand for a certain thing people will make that product. As long as they know that there's a person who's going to buy my product, people will make it. And so that's one of the things we do. And then the 2% actually, we just, uh, we channel it through our foundation, uh, which we're still setting up. Uh, I mean, we've set it up, but I still feel like we could do more with it. So it's still something we're discussing in terms of how do we constantly make it better. So that's the arm that basically uh, deals with the 2% um, revenue distribution, like who's going to get it, how do we do it, what is, or how are we able to do it in a sustainable way. And then uh, the third way we make an impact is environmental. So we try to recycle as much as possible, basically avoid waste, I think, um, the fashion industry and generally just anything nowadays, like if you order something, you get it in a box, in a box, in a box, you know, and then you're like, oh my gosh, wow, this nice unboxing experience out in the bin, you know, <laughs> I'm like, they used water, energy, labor, capital to create this thing that we just toss out. And that's one of the things we did. We decided we're not going to create shoe boxes. We will basically use, uh, put our shoes in a bag, in a shoe bag. And basically, if we if one box is taking like nine pairs of shoes, we've eliminated like eight other boxes that would have been um, used for that. And so we do that and we use existing box. So when um, if we are shipping, we try to ship with the logistics company box as opposed to having our own box inside their box to deliver to the customer, which has worked out so far because most logistics company are already creating boxes. And then we also do recycle newspapers um, instead of using shoe trees or uh, using like the, the soft tissue to stuff it. We thought, why not use old newspapers that would have ended up in the dump site anyway to fill it up as opposed to having something crisp and new and putting it in there. Because at the end of the day, someone opens, removes, throws away. And so I feel like there's just so much element of packaging that is thrown away, but is so expensive that... Um, I think the earth has had enough of us, to be honest. <laughs> like we take advantage of so many resources to create something that we just throw out. And I think we have as human beings to think about how sustainable is this? Um, I mean, we're not that big yet, but I'm like, it's an example to others. It's an example to the businesses that look up to us and the other businesses that are looking at what are other businesses doing. Someone has to do something for other people to be like, well, we actually don't need like shoe boxes if you're gonna throw it away, you know. Or maybe people will be like, okay, I'll take the shoe box but not throw it and use it for something else. But the idea is that we need to take care of the environment, and that's something that um, we're pretty much serious at Enda. 
And the last change we want to make is to change how people see Kenya and Africa in general, because I feel like um, everybody basically looks at Africa. You know how they look at Africa, you know, but I'm also like, there's a different perspective when you grow up in Africa. It's not all doom and gloom. It's like, we pretty have good childhood and stuff like that. And I'm like, if you look at most of the raw materials of anything that is being made of the, in the planet, it comes from Africa, you know. So we produce a lot of raw materials. So if we are already known for quality raw materials, why can't we be flip that to be known for quality goods, you know? Ghana, chocolate. I'm always like, why do we associate Switzerland with chocolate? Ghana is like right there, you know. <laughs> same thing. I think that's the same process for Kenya. And I'm like, we have the resources, but we need to change the way people view products from Africa so that it's not just a charity product that, oh, that's a handicraft product that, and not to target handicraft products. But to say that's a product that was handmade and stuff like that, but we want to be able to be on the same place in a shop with international brands, and you wouldn't even have to think this is from Africa. It's like you would it will basically compete on a global level. And that's what we want to change as well, that you basically get these uh, products and you appreciate that um, they're just as good as any other products around the world, really, yeah. Yeah, I think your your approach is really, you know, what most businesses should be doing because the idea is let's grow with the people and the people will help us grow. So it's, it's like a give and take. And I think... Um, if more businesses, you know, implement this idea, this can only help, um, you know, every business grow. And in turn, the, the, the global economy will be more fair and more kind of neutral in a sense. Um, what what yeah, you just mentioned absolutely. about changing the image of Kenya. And it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing when uh, businesses develop locally and if you create a um, a very premium product and you charge a premium price obviously because it is a premium product what is the the, yeah. the general reception is almost like because it's local it's not as good so what has your your whole um, process been with this kind of you know developing this brand and saying listen we made in Kenya we are running shoe I know there's a lot of running shoe companies who have you know been there and done that kind of thing but how did you kind of manage that image and how are you still you know, trying to convince people that this is a very good running shoe? Um, it's actually a work in progress, if I'm honest. But that said, we do have a lot of local support, like uh, a lot. Um, but I think some of the things, I've been trying to understand this from a like different perspectives. I think part of it is like psychological. And I don't want to go into the whole colonial stuff, you know, like everybody's like, yeah, get over it. But <laughs> I genuinely think we have a lot of work to do to love ourselves, like to just basically wholly and, you know, without question, just love the African body or the African self without having to aspire to something else. And so I think that some of it is psychological to a point where you don't even know it's psychological because that's what you think. You know, you're like, ah, no, it's an Adidas, yay. You know, it's a, it's a Nike product, yay, but it's a, it's a what, an African product? Hmm, how good is it? Hmm, you know, like people kind of do that. But I think um, personally for me, it's um, it's about, it's less about telling people don't and more about showing them how in the sense of, and that's why we do a lot of the storytelling through our products because it is it is the the connection you feel with the products that it's not just a product that was made 
for the sake of being made in Africa or Kenya, but it's a product that is actually trying to tell something, you know, through the storytelling bits. And I feel like a lot of that oral history was broken and we're trying to do it in a more digital and story and like product way, but to restore that pride by telling the stories of, of good things. Like, did you know we have this or did you know we did this or like, but telling that story through the product. The second thing is, um, I think, you know, like, I feel like people deserve quality products. Like, um, I don't like products that you buy and three months later you have to go buy again. And I think it's also showing the cost benefit value of it that, um, you know what, sometimes it's just good to buy something good that lasts as opposed to something that is kind of like fast fashion. And again, going back to the environmental aspect that it's, you, it, you should as much as possible try to buy something that's good and that's long lasting and uh, basically makes sense. So for me, I'm like quality is one thing that um, we are trying to always improve on. We are trying to never compromise, like create a good quality product because I feel like a consumer, regardless of whether you're African or Asian or you're, you're looking for a good bargain, you know, and that good bargain depends on your income sometimes. But at the end of the day, when you know something is good quality, you're like, okay, I can save for it and I can buy it. Uh, but that said, we still have a lot of work to do um, to just uh, a, prove to Kenyans and Africans in general that we're here and we're here to stay, you know, and that we are worthy of your uh, of your attention, of your love, of your sacrifice. Like we, like we are growing together. And that's why for me, I feel like the community is so important. But just like every other relationship, people have been existing with their current norms. And so we have to talk to them, listen, talk, but like we have to have a conversation until we get to a point where everybody's like, okay, we really dig this brand. Uh, we like it. So for me, I'm approaching it from that perspective of um, more so not looking at it like why don't people like local products, but more of how can we make people appreciate local products more? Because ultimately it's the emotion you feel that makes you get into your wallet and remove your money. And so if we do not have that connection to people, then it doesn't matter how expensive our marketing campaigns are uh, if people don't feel like we are being genuine to them. Yeah, I think the the main thing with you know most brands, especially the the big ones, is being able to tell a story that resonates with people. And I think it's good to mm -hmm. see an African grown company kind of tell that story so nicely. And what I like is the term "run like a Kenyan." Um, can you mm -hmm. maybe touch a bit on that and how that kind of ties into the community? Because, like you said, Kenya is known for its long distance runners. I mean the the results are, are there for everyone to see. So how does that, that term mm -hmm. kind of tie into the brand? Um, so run Kenyan, because a lot of people are like, ah, if I buy your shoes, am I going to win marathons? <laughs> That's like, how oh, you're smart. <laughs> um, run Kenyan is a philosophy, right? It's essentially... What does it mean to, to be a Kenyan runner? And we basically took that and that's what we're trying to translate to the brand. First of all, most Kenyan runners come from extremely humble backgrounds, yet they still go and dominate the, the global stage. And for us, running Kenyan is part of that, that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter uh, who your, what your background is, who your parents are. Sometimes it's the consistency and the hard work. As long as you're, you're true to self, if you can perform to your best level, then you shall dine with the kings and queens. And so it's all about that. It's not just about running. When you're running Kenya, and technically in your life, when I look at it, it's more of 
Am I being true and consistent to the things I want to achieve? Like their focus is extremely tunnel vision. I want to win gold in this uh, race or this race and this race. And how do I get there? It means waking up and doing those morning runs when everybody else is in bed. It means going for stretches. Like, you know, you have a kind of pushing on even on your bodies. Like, uh, sorry, dude, we don't want to do this. But having, but it's, it's more of an attitude, if I would say it's, it's like an attitude of consistently showing up. And so that when you're, when you're, um, they say train hard, run easy. When you're basically crossing the finish line and everyone's like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. Like, there was work that went into that and basically saying, okay, if you're part of that ender community, you're accepting that it takes work to build. It takes time to build and whatever process it is you're going through, it's okay to take time and it's okay to have disappointments because sometimes they have injuries, they have delays, they have, um, you know, like all sorts of mad things happening, sometimes doping and all that, but it's all about, okay, so this thing has happened. Am I going to let it set me back or am I going to, to go forward with it? Uh, another key thing of Kenyan running, I've mentioned it, but it's also consistency, that it's more of showing up every day. And you just show up whether you're having a good day, whether you're having a bad day. Uh, you can't just go and say to your competitors, like, ah, man, I just really don't feel this COVID. It's like killing me. Yeah, everybody's going through COVID. So... <laughs> You know, like shape up and try to see, okay, how can I keep going on? So there's um, that consistency as well. And there's also a humility, I would say. And um, I think that's one of the conversations, honestly, like we have with athletes, because sometimes I feel like, you know, you should be more out there, you know, <laughs> but a lot of them are not chest beaters like, oh, man, look at me, I'm the man and stuff like that. They're really rooted in their communities because their win isn't just for them. It's about... Um, helping other people like and that's also part of the things we want to alleviate that you have this one athlete who's like the guy who is responsible for everything whereas if we brought some of that benefits of the manufacturing industry here then there's less pressure on fewer people to kind of like um, cater to everyone and so the idea is uh, that you're able to be consistent, but be part of a community that is also helping other people. And so there's really different elements when you look at what it means to run Kenyan, but it's very much rooted on consistency and community and how do you help each other do that. I think that's one of the things that we are losing um, as people, as especially when we become more modern and cities, it's like you can stay six months, you don't even know who your neighbor is. That's like, you cannot run Kenyan technically if you are not tuned in into your community like we are social animals and we can only be better if we if we lift each other up so run kenyan is about consistency it's about showing up and it's about community yeah i think that's an important kind of thing that we can all you know i hope that's kind of the general you know community aspect that we can all kind of implement in our own way and it's same thing like over here in south africa we have you know our kind of unity is through sports and it's it's very similar to kind of the Kenyan running, you know, our rugby and our cricket and our, you know, that's and that's what usually ties people on a level, you know, playing field. And I think it's really awesome that you guys have done this and managed to build this brand based off of this idea of building a community. With that being said, um, how has it been, you know, once this whole crowdfunding, you went through the two stages and you guys are now, you know, making shoes. 
how has it been selling the the actual product and what avenues have you guys resorted to just on a business scale you know are you doing everything yourself are you you know selling through something like an amazon kind of thing or is it just on your website mm-hmm. That's a good question. And it's something that evolves, I would say, uh, based on the business. When we started, we were doing everything ourselves. It's just Weldon and I handling customer service production fulfillments. Like we were doing everything and getting very exhausted at it. And so as we have grown, we have outsourced most of the staff uh, because, A, as I said, nobody is the sole um, reservoir of knowledge. And so other people have basically perfected their skills. And we have tried to tap into that. But as a small businesses, business, when we started, it was just the two co-founders doing everything. And then we got some people to help. So other people were doing customer service, other people doing um, fulfillment. And then we've grown a little bit more. And now we've outsourced fulfillment, um, at least uh, in the US, we've outsourced it. And we intend to outsource it in Europe as well. So we're basically getting to a point where we're like, okay, we don't need to do everything. If other people exist who have done this, and perfected it, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. But as I I think the key thing is the progression. Like if you start your business and you're already offsetting it at the beginning, do you have the funds for it? So a lot of these things are necessity and also progression that you don't want to put so many costs on the business, whereas it has not proved itself worthy of sustaining those costs. So we've just basically been going one step at a time. When you get to a point where we think, okay, it makes sense to outsource, then we do that. And, you know, for small businesses out there, especially in the fashion, sport, apparel kind of uh, area, what has been your, I'm sure you've gotten plenty of requests for, you know, send me a free pair of shoes and I'll do this and that. Mm. What What is, what's your <laughs> advice for small businesses going through this? Um, especially, you know, because you guys are so young, you know, such a young brand, it's easy for people to try and see that as like a vulnerability for you to feel the pressure to like, mm-hmm. this is, you know, they need me more than, you know, they, they can mm-hmm. possibly, you know, fathom kind of thing. So what's your, your advice on that? And how can small businesses handle such situations? I would say it depends, right? Because if Lupita asked me for a free pair of shoes, I would be that, right? <laughs> so it depends on the return on investment. Because you cannot just give product for people to look good. It has to give it back. Like if you give it, it has to pay back from the product you gave and it has to pay back at least for like X number of customers. And so that's hard, especially if you want to make everybody happy, which I've discovered is not possible no matter what you do. But um, it's, uh, I would say you weigh based on, okay, first of all, you have to know yourself. Let me start there. Like basically know your business and know who your target audience is. That's something we made a mistake on. I think initially when we started, we were just like, oh, this is a cool person. Like we'll give them products. And um, when you look at the return of investment, it's like, yeah, so they showed up looking nice in our product. Was there any return on investment? We did try a a system where we were like, okay, um, I will give you products, but pay you based on conversion, which also didn't um, work out. So I basically also figured that people who are popular, but they're not really influencers, you know, like an influencer basically says, okay, I'm going to get out of my money, my pockets, give money because I really like what that person did. And so having to learn A, there was different audiences and B, there were famous people and influencers and the two are not the same. 
and then trying to figure out, okay, who are we targeting to? So if someone is a boxer, uh, for example, they may be great, but it does no good for us to give them product because it's just not the market we are targeting. If someone is um, in a basically in just in a different industry that where our ideal customers are, so that first of all makes it easier for you to say no if you have a problem saying no. Bless the people who have no problem saying no. <laughs> so it makes it easier because it is not aligned with your mission. And then secondly, you now go to the return on investment. Will I be able to recoup this money if this person has the free product? If the answer is yes, then go for it. If the answer is no, then don't. Reason being, as a small business, you have limited amount of stock. That stock costs money to produce, and that money isn't just, you don't look at it as cost of production alone. It's supposed to basically increase, have margins to enable you to also pay your rent, pay your bills, pay your staff, and pay all that. So the more product you give away, the more you're basically undercutting yourself from that perspective. And so I think one of the things um, I'm grateful for, at least from my friends that have been that they have supported the brand, but then I also know that some people who may not be too happy with us, some are happy with us, but I think it's just having to to protect the business. The business is a baby, you know, you, you don't just get a newborn baby and you're like, okay, now go play with LeBron on the basketball court. <laughs> like it, it doesn't happen, you know? And so similarly, you have to protect your business to give it time to grow. And so that as you grow, then you're able to, to figure out uh, that you can pay your costs and then you can be able to pay other people. So I'd say, I'd, I'd just basically say to be strategic about that. And it's okay to say no. Like, um, no is a perfectly good answer. Uh, if you want to explain it, go ahead. If not, it's fine. But ultimately, uh, people become more happy when your business succeeds. Like even the friends who are so mad, you know, giving them free products will be like, oh my gosh, my pal has this really amazing business. So the thing is you have to make your business work. And so that has uh, some decisions to it, but I always think about, is it going to return money back to the business? Yeah, I think that's obviously with social media becoming such a powerful tool, it's easy for people to, mm. like you say, they, they are, you're almost afraid to say no because you're afraid of the the consequence of that. Maybe they'll you know, bad mouth you or, mm. you know, there's some, there's always some it's fear okay. to it. So I think that's. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. In terms of a uh, bad mouthing, because one thing I've learned is the internet moves on from one person to the other, literally. And so it's what they say. There's a Swahili saying that they say, um, how do I translate it? Uh, it's almost like let them talk. Uh, after all, tomorrow there'll be something else to talk about, you know? And so you have to be selfish with the decisions you're making for your business. At the end of the day, we want your business to succeed. At the end of the day, there's so many statistics stacked against small businesses that are starting out. They'll be like, 70% don't succeed. X percent will die out in the first year. You have all that stacked against you. Worry about that. Don't worry about what people say. Ultimately, if you make it, they will come along. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I think this is a really awesome brand. I'm hoping to see it kind of grow as you know it has been you know over time. And where can people buy your product? I know your website is one of the places where else can can people buy your product? Um, right now, we are mostly a direct-to-consumer company for various reasons. It's been strategic uh, for us, but we are really hoping in the next two to three years to be at least more in um, Western and Southern Africa and more in Eastern Africa. So for now, we do online, but we do ship. 
Um, it's a little bit, we're still trying to figure out logistics uh, of delivery outside Kenya and uh, the US uh, because most of the, I mean, the logistics in Africa is expensive. Whoever cracks it will be bigger than Amazon. That's my opinion. <laughs> but it's uh, super expensive. And so um, that's not to say that we still can deliver, but then if we deliver, for instance, South Africa, someone has to pay the customs uh, duty and stuff like that. So it's not really the smoothest experience, but uh, it's still possible to get it done. But we are hoping to, right now, we're just basically looking at how can we be more accessible to customers in certain markets. But if you still order now, you can still be able to get it on www.endaspotsair.com. Thank you so much for coming through and uh, making time. Um, I really hope that this brand grows and, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys put out in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time as well. Thanks, Nava.